Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Ungenius Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan. Um, before we begin the today's first episode, I'd just like to give a sort of general idea for where this podcast series is headed and what I want from it and what I'd like you guys to get from it too. So before we begin, uh, let's just kind of talk about the sort of general contents and ideas of what this podcast is going to be about, what I'll be talking about, what I'll be giving my opinion on, and what I'll be analyzing. So the general sort of idea of the podcast is to just basically talk about some political events, uh, interesting current affairs, and some philosophical and ethical ideas that I hope uh, people will enjoy, just as I do. Um, With a sort of general schedule as well for the podcast and stuff like that, I'll probably be producing a a new episode every Friday, maybe. You know, I might um, do a bit of research throughout the week and produce an episode on Friday, or maybe I'll do an episode every two weeks, maybe. It it really depends on sort of my workload and what I'm doing. Uh, Just moving on from that, what I kind of want to fill my episodes with as well along with the the ideas and stuff like that, I kind of want to give you guys um, a sort of a a big question or a big theme throughout the episode that you guys can really sort of think about, play through in your heads and and just sort of question yourself, question your own ideas, or maybe reinforce your own ideas with just trying to reason with why you believe what you believe. And this kind of leads on to what I want from the show as well. So kind of what I want pretty much mixes in as well what I want for you guys who are listening, you know, all four of you, thank you for tuning in. Well, you know, you're not tuning in, it's a podcast, but this is why it's called Ungenius anyway. Um, but uh, what I want from it is sort of just to, for me personally, I just kind of want to learn more about uh, certain political events, become more aware of the world around me, and just kind of being able to reason with things, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in the world, there's a lot of stuff that's happening, it's, it's pretty big stuff, or even it's it's just pretty small stuff, these little ideas that you might find interesting and really want to get to know better. And so I kind of want to be able to explain things to people better, you know, speaking and being able, being able to interpret stuff, but also being able to sort of give my opinion on things and really analyze, pick the most important details, you know. And that mixes in a lot with what I want for you guys as well. You know, I want you guys to learn new stuff. And most importantly, I want you to actually find it engaging. You know, I don't want to be sat here for 40 minutes talking about something. Sure, I, I enjoy it, you know, but the whole point of a podcast is for other people to listen to it too. And I really want you guys to, you know, just just acknowledge that you're learning something new and, and try to find it interesting, try to engage. And once the episode's over, something really just kind of let it rest in your mind and just think about it, you know, because I, I think I think today people don't really think or sort of reason the things that they uh, sort of believe or know, you know. How often do you just sit down and really think, why, why do I think the way I think? Why do I think what I think? You know, why am I thinking that? Where does that come from? You know, and I, I want to do it more, and I hope through this you guys can do it more too. Uh, along with that, just as a sort of kind of try to pique your interest uh, more about what will be coming in the future, 
obviously with today's episode, you know, we're talking about the past, present and future of Rwanda. It's a very, very large breadth of a topic. I really had to sort of, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I really had to sort of pick and choose the information I wanted, you know, because, you know, this this is spanning from like the 1960s to like now in the future. It's a it's a pretty big span of time. Uh, there's a lot of information, lots of different subcategories of information that I've had to take notes, research, pick out. Is this is this vital to know to like share with people, you know? And I, on that note as well, I've been trying. I've been really trying to get a sort of impartial view of things. You know, I don't want I don't want to give you some biased sort of viewpoint of these events and affairs that are happening, just so I can sort of reaffirm my old my own world view about things and stuff like that or or take the easy way out by just saying yeah you know i i thought it was like this there's something to say that it might not be like this so let's just you know keep that out of the equation and let's carry on but anyway so you know we're talking about uh rwanda today it's a very breath uh breathy subject i think that's the right way to say it but i might also uh, do a few more future episodes on maybe China, you know, the rise of China, China's economy, they're making some serious gains in Africa with the United Nations, trying to create another Silk Road. It's pretty interesting, you know, like how are the European and uh, American economies and political systems going to keep up with it? We've also got Russia with its excursion, ex- excursions into Ukraine and sort of the, um, the, um, what's the word? I can't remember the, the events. Let's say the events. Yeah, that would work out pretty well. Uh, but along with that, with Russia, we've got Europe, you know, how could I do like an, a comparison between Eastern Europe and Western Europe? You know, the, the sort of the complete lack of trust in the democracies of Britain and France, uh, due to Macron's tool failure to listen to the people with the gilet jouan or the yellow vest because i can actually speak english or brexit and the complete meltdown that's happening in uh, the british government at the moment compared to the to the more sort of right-wing sort of um governments of poland and ukraine you know we have Viktor orban in in hungary i said i meant hungary not ukraine sorry um but then also the Polish uh, Justice and Freedom Party, I think it's called, called they would be some pretty interesting uh, things to look at. We've also got you know, the United States and the presidency of Donald Trump, how, Trump that, how that's affecting America. You know, we had a lot of talk about isolationism and sort of kind of pulling away from uh, the NATO um, agreement, which would be a very, very big thing to kind of discuss, very breathy there talking about the impacts, kind of analyzing what might happen. That would be pretty cool. But also, uh, I'd like to kind of delve into subjects that might not have as big of a, a breadth to them, but have a, oh, well, they have a, they have a big, um, the breadth here subjects have a bigger depth, have a an equally large depth, I should say. But given the span of time I'm basically giving myself, it's kind of a, a whistle-stop tour of the um, sort of issues. So I can't really I can't really delve into them as much as I'd like to, or as you might like me to. But with these other subjects, say, like things about immigration, you know, the 2015 migrant crisis, crisis in Europe, immigration in general, you know, just a bit of facts about it. Do I think it's good? What are my thoughts on it? So like that, or an analysis... 
kind of thing. Uh, nationalism, the idea of nationalism really interests me. Kind of trying to look at the trends in the West compared to the East and what's kind of happening. Multiculturalism, another big thing that I'm really interested in that I want to talk to people about, really kind of prod around with. You know, all these all these ideas, they have, they're not as sort of, uh, they don't have, have such a bigger breadth as sort of like let's look at all the issues with Europe at the moment. You know, you know, you can kind of you can really hammer down all the stuff to do with immigration. I think uh, the depth of it, but we've also you know we I could talk a bit about like sort of here are the left wing ideologies versus the right wing ideologies. What do I think about them? You know, you know I could discuss the sort of problems of fascism compared to the problems of Marxism, the kind of statements that they make, why they're wrong, why they're right, why why are some parts better than others? You know, why are some people fascist? Why are some people Marxist? What happens there? You know, uh, even more depthy ideas. Um, maybe just my personal opinion on these things. You know, these these sort of ethical kind of delving into ethical issues you know here you know you got abortion what are what are the thoughts on that where do these thoughts stem from what do i think is it even possible to change people's views on things you know you know abortion that's a pretty big thing you know um say in britain for example do i think that we could ever really change laws on abortion you know once people are setting their idea it's pretty hard to turn them away i'd say other pretty big things now as well transgenderism gender identity gender fluidity sexual identity stuff like that these new and upcoming sort of phenomenon that are really going to be at the the forefront of sort of modern politics in in the now really and what will probably dominate politics in the future and just as i've summed it up at the end of my notes just a bunch of ethical stuff really that's about it that's like the the depthiest of the depth you could probably get so i hope that's kind of covered everything for now for this very quick introduction um from actually like practicing this this is the longest it's been the second longest was six minutes and that like uh almost come up to 11 minutes so i haven't really done oh, i just smacked the mic there <laughs> i haven't really done what i wanted to do but um it's no bother I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's the very first episode of the Ungenius podcast. I'm really excited. I put a lot of work in, put a lot of research in. If you liked it, please say you did. If you can, I don't know what you're listening to this on. It's on many different platforms. I've got it on the Anchor app where I'm actually making the podcast. I've got it on Spotify, Stitcher or something. Might be on Apple Podcasts. Not too sure. But if you liked it, please just say you did. If you did, I mean, don't just don't lie to me, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, all four of you guys, you know, please, I'd, I'd, I'd hope at least a quarter of you guys would like it, you know, just even if it's my mom, just please, mom, text me, say, please say you love me, mom, I miss you, uh, <laughs> but, you know, just say if you liked it or not, you know, I, I really would appreciate uh, engagement if, like, you actually do like it, just kind of, say you liked it that would kind of give me a bit more hope but if not you know it it's it's uh if people don't like it it doesn't really bother me it's this is kind of more of a project for myself kind of see what i can do try and improve myself a bit but uh if people like it too that's a that's a that's a plus i'd say i will definitely be doing more of these episodes probably thinking more like an episode every two weeks just to kind of give myself 
enough time, enough space, you know, kind of ease off the tension a bit. But I, I think I could probably handle one episode a week uh, for a while. So that's about it for the for the introduction. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Brendan. This is the Ungenius Podcast, and enjoy. Have a good one. Hello there, guys, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Ungenius Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan, and welcome. Now, as you can see from the title, today's episode, episode one, is about the past, present, and future of Rwanda. Now, just kind of explain a bit, I'm going to be... dividing those little segments into three sort of timelines. So we have the past, which is from 1961 to 1994. I'll explain what those kind of dates mean in, in, in a while. We have the present, which is from 1994 to now, 2019, as of this recording. And the future, so 1994 up until um, whenever. And in that part, I'm just going to be giving a little bit of my th- my sort of opinion, my analysis, and a bit of a bit of prediction of what I've got to think has happened, what I think will happen, uh, based on what I've looked at, what I've researched, and what notes I've taken. Now, even further down, in a bit more depth, we I have some sub segments within those timelines. So in each timeline, I'm going to be following the the government of the just the sort of general government political actions that have been taken over the timeline, the uh, the sort of health and these little sort of notes about the economy that happened which kind of links with the government as i'll explain uh, in a bit and the hutu and tutsi relationship at the time in each of the timelines now as you know or as you may not know which i will tell you in 1994 there was a genocide in rwanda it was known as the rwandan genocide and this was between two major ethnic groups within the country we have the hutu who was in the majority that made around 85% of Rwanda, and then you have the Tutsi, who was who made around 15% of Rwanda. Now, this was a genocide um, against the Tutsi and was started by Hutu people, and it, it was pretty devastating, and I'm going to talk about that more in the future, but that's just sort of an explanation why I'm going to be tracking their sort of ethnic relationship throughout the years. Also, maybe in the, in the presence of timeline segment the future timelines i'm going to be talking about international affairs i might delve into a bit in the uh, past segment but i'm not too sure just kind of want to keep it tight but yeah that is kind of where we're going to start where we're going to kind of start off so we're starting off with the past uh timeline of rwanda and we're going to begin with the sub segment of the government so where do we begin well I'll, i'll tell you it all begins in 1961 i would say uh, with the real, where it really kicks off. And so it's 1961, and Rwanda has just had a referendum to change its government. Uh, the country has just changed from a, a a monarchy and a sort of kingdom to a presidency with a president and a prime minister. So it's a pretty big change. Now, fast forward just to one year later, on the 1st of July, 1962, and they are granted independence by Belgium. Now, why did that happen? Well, uh, the building up to this this year, there were there were a few um, sort of ethnic clashes between the uh, Hutu and Tutsi, and this is kind of why I want to track their ethnic relationship over the years because it's 
it's something that's deeply intertwined into the the nation's history for tons and tons of years. I couldn't even I couldn't even put a number on it's that it's that long. So from my understanding, I think it was uh, sort of refugees, Tutsi refugees that had fled the country um, were fighting in fighting uh, Hutus in Rwanda, and the Tutsis, sorry, were based in Uganda. And this this kind of um, clashing that had occurred, a lot of racial tensions, it's really hard to handle. And from my opinion of it, I think the Belgians who who owned Rwanda at the time, but they still allowed a, a, a sort of monarchy. Um, I think they were kind of just like, yeah, we can't really be bothered. We'll just drop them. You know, we gave them, let's just give them the permission to become independent and just let them be, you know. But, but again, on the other side, there had been a quite a shift towards democratization of the country for a while, you know, in the 50s. Belgium and sort of France, who gave foreign aid to Rwanda at the time, we're kind of really like you guys really need a democracy you know it's kind of we're getting a bit sick of this old monarchy kind of thing also the church uh the the tutsi majority the sorry tutsi minority uh monarch and monarchy who were all tutsi um they were pretty close to the church at the time the catholic church but the church then started moving towards uh democracy as well you know they were kind of a bit you know guys this uh this monarchy malarchy it's kind of uh kind of crazy you might want to cut that out so I'd say it's kind of mixed between we can't really be bothered to deal with the problems in Rwanda with all this ethnic stuff and we kind of just want you guys to become a democracy. So I think that's kind of where that uh, sort of all stemmed from. So the country's independent. It has a presidency. Who is the first president? First up, we have Gregory Kaibanda. I am not going to be very good at pronouncing these names. I've been looking through them, I've been trying to learn them for ages, but I just can't get it nailed down. But Gregory, it's like French, you know, Belgian, like Gregory Kaibanda, you know, pretty cool guy. Well, not really, actually, he was kind of bad. But he asserted Hutu majority power with the Palmer Hutu party. Um, Yeah, he was the first president. I kind of a bit more interested in the guy after him. And the guy after him was Juvenal Habiari Mana. And this guy came to power on the 5th of July 1973 through a coup d'etat against Gregory Kaibanda. And uh, for most of this part, I'm kind of going to be talking about Habiari Mana instead of Kaibanda. Just kind of wanted to slip him in there. So, what was all this about Habiari Mana? Well, it was pretty crazy, actually. You know, the. Um, uh, Rwanda hadn't really been a democracy for a like, very long time before things started to sit, turn sour. So what, what were the beliefs of uh, this new president? Uh, I'm going to call him Juvenile from now on. I know you're supposed to use um, second names, but it's it's very like Habi Yari Mana, you know, I'm Juvenile, Juvenile, you know, we'll call him that for now. So this new uh, government, this new government had pretty right-wing beliefs uh, that kind of uh, gained a lot of support from their conservative beliefs, and they were pretty anti-communist. And especially at this time, you know, um, and leading up into the 80s, uh, as you know, he took power in 1973, leading up to the 80s, there was a pretty big struggle uh, going on in sub-Saharan Africa at the time of communism. Uh, you have places like the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is right next to Rwanda, 
So that's a that's a pretty big thing. And as we, um, by the way, Habi Arimana was the president um, up until 1994 when the uh, genocide began. Also, he was the president during the uh, Rwandan civil war, which I'll be talking about as well. Also, his assassination, spoilers, was kind of a a spark point that led to the um, the Rwandan genocide as well. But, so, you know, he's come to power for a coup d'etat. Not doing too bad, but things start to get a bit weird. Uh, Mainly because there isn't really any democracy. You know, quickly, Habi Arimana's government turns into a totalitarian government. He is part of the MNRD party uh, and basically uses and forces from that political party to kind of whip people into the line and stuff. And it's pretty weird as well. Like, um, uh, people were made to sort of dance and sing in adulation of the president, stuff like that. Very, very totalitarian system and actually... Um, implements a lot of tactics from other right-wing uh, governments from the past. For example, in the build-up to the Rwandan genocide, uh, radio messages were used, coded messages, uh, propaganda was spread. Exactly the same style of propaganda used by the Nazis. Like We're talking extremely similar parallels here. We have it's the sort of tactic of um, calling the the um, the Hutus sort of the victims in the entire entire thing against the Tutsi. Like, oh, we're Hutu, we're victims, we're innocent. We have to defend ourselves against the the Tutsi dogmas. Even at the time, really extreme Hutu people were just calling it like the final solution to the Tutsi problem. You know that. It's pretty crazy. You know, but in the initial stages of the government, you try to be pretty chill with the, the, the Hutu and Tutsi relations, uh, try to keep it easy, didn't want to do any policies to kind of sway um, public opinion in any way, uh, because that that's kind of what Kai Banda did. Uh, he was sort of very sort of biased to the Hutu majority, uh, as he was in the Palma Hutu party. But uh, Habi Aramana kind of tried to go easy with it, but kind of slipped further in because he he implemented sort of quotas and stuff for government and academic uh, uh, jobs and, and occupations that basically disadvantaged the Tutsi, which isn't very good, as you may know. Along with that, uh, when a totalitarian government is trying to max it, mask itself as a democracy, what can you expect? Have a little thing in your heads. Answer is election fraud. We all saw it coming. I don't know. But, I mean, I did. It's right on my screen. Uh, but, um, uh, so yeah, there was a huge ton of election fraud with Javier Aramana. Uh, in all the elections in 1978, he won 98.99% of the vote. In 1983, won 99.97% of the vote. In, and in 1998, he won 99.98% of the vote. So he, he pretty much clutched it, I think. you got to take his hat off to him. He did. He was almost out of the, the fight for a second. 
and then just to to sort of end it all off, he didn't he didn't really help the country. You know, there was a bit of economic progress as I was told, but it it didn't last very long, and people were still pretty poor and in extreme poverty. So I hope that's kind of a, a sort of a general kind of well rounded look at the sort of governing style and a pretty pretty surface level i've got to say pretty surface level but i hope it it's kind of just you know giving you a bit more to look at and we kind of, we're going to kind of be mixing this with the economy in the next uh, segment after this so to kind of uh tie things together so i hope that's pretty good and we're going to be going on to the next part of the segment which is about the economy so then, we're now on to the next segment of the um, past timeline with the economy. Now, the economy under Kaibanda was pretty good. It was decent, you know, and I'll, I'll kind of explain the, the, sort of, the sort of main figure of that uh, in, a, in a bit. So we got a pretty decent economy in the, the early, mid, late 1960s and early 70s under Kaibanda. Because they had sort of a pretty low in, low inflation, which means uh, higher wages and pretty good trade deals that benefit them pretty well. I think there was there was a pretty good bond with the United States. Uh, however, there was a pretty sharp decline in the nineteen eighties due to um, a pretty big uh, fall and sort of uncertainty in the market with cro- coffee prices, which uh, was probably a pretty big export in Rwanda. And so it made the economy pretty shaky. And just to kind of give you a comparison of, of how hard-hitting a punch that was with the economy, uh, in the 70s and early 80s, the GDP was 6.9% growth, which is actually pretty good. You know, um, GDP, that takes in all factors of how much people are producing, uh, how much wealth they're producing a year, how much people are getting paid per year, and what the sort of net... Uh, so profit you're getting from imports and exports, 6.9% growth annually, that's pretty good. Uh, but with the coffee prices and stuff with like with the devaluations in the stock market and a decreased uh, lack of confidence in the economy, it dropped to around 2.9% growth in GDP uh, around the sort of early 80s after Harry Abi, Habi, Habi Arimana, sorry, uh, took power, so that was from around the eighties to nineteen eighty-five. Uh, so, so what does that all mean? So, you know, the, the economy is decreasing. How can we all tie that in with the government? You know, so so what's happening? Right, we got uh, a drop in the economy, drop in GDP growth. What's happening? We got lower purchasing power. Okay, people are getting less money. They can buy less stuff. They're turning pretty unhappy. Um, salaries, as mentioned just there. So, where can we look at examples in the past where other things have happened? Let's take 1929, for example, October 1929, Wall Street crash. What happened to that after that? The Nazis. Dun, dun, dun. Totalitarianism. Here it is. It's knocking on the door. So, and this was pretty good for um, the new president, Habi Arimana, because uh, sort of local media just media in general at the time in Rwanda was pretty scarce. There was only one major, major radio channel called Mil Collines. I think it might be French. I'm not too sure. 
But I mean, if you have one main radio station, you can pretty easily control the flow of information like that. And I think probably what probably would have been done, as I will explain later with the relations, people were kind of just fed information, you know, and really just kind of twisted things. So people kind of kept under wraps. And I feel like a, a scapegoat kind of thing was was probably a pretty big tactic as, you know, we've we've got economic downfall in the 1980s after a pretty good um, pretty good uh, sort of stint with a pretty solid economy in the 60s and 70s. Then we got the 80s, bad economy, and then we have a genocide in the 90s. I'm not saying, like, bad economy, you're going to have a genocide. I'm just saying it's a pretty big factor uh, linked with, uh, you know, totalitarianism from this bad economy. You know, how else are you going to keep people in check? You know, people are, the the country's going downhill. People want to look for alternatives. So you kind of have to um, keep them in check. And then that, the whole sort of lack of media really, um, uh, the lack of media uh, sort of spread and the control of information really helps with that. And surprisingly, the sort of, fall in the economy and the the low gdp actually hit the educated elite pretty hard and i just think that's something interesting that needs to be noted you know not sure why though i'm not really developing that point anymore so then so then we've got the 80s in the economy and all this and in 1990 the civil war begins against the rpf the rwandan patriotic front these are guys as i mentioned before Tutsi refugees that fled the country. They're sort of based in Uganda next to Rwanda, and they're just kind of doing little tax in the country, kind of gratata, that kind of thing. And you know, so you gotta you gotta fall in the economy. The civil war was absolutely devastating for the for the economy. Um after the civil war begins, GDP drops dramatically. It's at a 90 uh, it's at a minus 40% decrease. That is absolutely insane. Yeah, you got a pretty high of 6.9%, but you are not going to survive with a minus 40% degree, uh, minus forty decrease. That was terrible. Couple that with a genocide, and you've got absolute anarchy on your hands, and that is kind of where we're going to be going with the le- next little segment. So um, this is actually a pretty important part as well for the economy, and I'm trying to speak uh, a lot faster here because... This is going to be a pretty long episode, <laughs> as I've just realized. But I think this might be a good time to slip in the sort of big question, sort of theme thing for the day. And that is, um, so say say a country's doing really well. It's, it's booming. Everyone's happy. Um, there's a great, great, great just sort of feeling in the country. Everything's going well. But there is political repression there's just oppression, political assassinations, cover-up attempts, um, excursions outside the country into other neighboring countries to kind of mess them up a bit. What I want to pose to you guys is, is that acceptable uh, if it sort of means a country's doing well, like like election fraud as well? Like, Is it okay to just kind of uh, tip the vote a bit and keep the same guy in power? If it means that we're actually doing well, you know, we're actually, you know, yeah, you, you lose a bit of uh, choice in what you want the country to be like, but look around you, you know, you got a good wage, you got a good job, you're content, pretty much. And that's the kind of question I want. Because in this example with uh, Habi Arimana, you may say no, you know, like, because it didn't go very well. 
you know, sure, it might be going well now, but what if it doesn't go well in the future? And that, well, that's my kind of opinion, maybe. But it's up for you to decide. And just when we go into the sort of the present sort of segment, you're kind of going to see that uh, reflected a bit more as well. So anyway, now we're going to move on to the Hutu and Tutsi relations. Um, ne- next segment for the, the past. Alrighty, guys, we are now at the final uh, sub-segment of the past segment of um, the first episode with Rwanda. And we're talking about now the Hutu and Tutsi relations throughout history. So just kind of again, we're going to have a little bit of background context. Um, the main split between the, the Tutsi and Hutu is overall, from what I've understood, apart from maybe just sort of tribal differences and kind of attention there, also came from... Uh, when Rwanda was occupied by the Belgians, where there was a main split there because the Belgians, uh, coupled with sort of racial theories of the time in the 30s, kind of saw the Tutsi as a as a more beautiful kind of African. You know, they looked more European, they had better European beauty standards. And that's kind of why they favoured the Tutsi um, minority monarchy, as was mentioned before and kind of allowed them to stay. So in the 30s as well, they have the implementation of ethnic ID cards, so people could know um, which ethnicity you were at whatever time. And this was, they were still in action in the 1990s when the genocide happened, and that really helped them kind of figure out who was who. So at the time, you have like an 85% split of Hutu, 50% Tutsi, and then like a very small percent uh, was a very small small minority of tall uh, ethnicity then we have the 1950s we have uh, democratization with belgium and the church as i've mentioned before with the government type and what kind of led to the independence of rwanda and this really flipped the dynamics of the sort of ethnic uh, ethnic uh, sort of tension here now the now the minority tutsi is at the bottom you know we now have a, a huge democracy that is ruled by the hutu majority and they're pretty angry i would imagine so fast forward a bit from the 50s, we have 1962, the RPF uh, is attacking from Uganda. This leads to more repression. Uh, we have 1963, the Tutsi are massacred. And again, in 1967, 20,000 Tutsi are killed. It is absolute anarchy. But even still, tension carries on building. We're going to jump forward all the way to the 1990s. And we've got Habi Arimana. He's continuing his punishment of the Tutsis. This is where sort of Nazi propaganda is implemented, as I mentioned before, in the government section. We've got victimhood being used with the sort of calling the the Hutu like, oh, we're the innocent victims. We need to defend ourselves. We need Hutu resistance against the Tutsis that are coming after us. Uh, this is well, we the Tutsi we started called the Inyenzi cockroaches, a complete dehumanization of the um, ethnic group here. We also have the Mil Colin, Colinez, as I was talking about before, the radio. It was called Hate Radio. Um, they used coded messages like, let's intensify the killing of insects, like was mentioned with the Inyenzi just before. We have almost go to work. You know, that's a really ominous thing, almost go to work. What does work mean? Work literally meant killing Tutsi. You know, the president after Habi Arimana was, after he was killed, uh, the, the president, I can't remember his name, uh, with uh, Cindy Kubawobo. He went around to villages and like uh, asking me, like, how are you getting on with your work? Please don't distract us from doing work. We all need to do work. 
you know, kind of really emphasized on wait, what was the word killing Tootsies? Like it's absolutely insane how sort of just thinly veiled it was. And like they were just they were just sending like transistor radios all the way around these Hutu villages, just kind of like preaching to people like like we've all got to like let's intensify the killing of insects here, guys. We really gotta carry carry this on, you know. Even further still, uh, a year before the genocide, we have further oppression. Um, there was a failed uh, invasion by the RPF, Rwandan Patriotic Front, in 1993. Things are really heating up now. We have the first mention of genocide by a Canadian lawyer, uh, William Shabs, I think it was called, in a UN report. This is when around 2,000 uh, were killed. So a pretty small number. But they're kind of seeing the sort of like, guys, we really need to watch out here. And this led to the UN, I'm going to kind of talk about in a bit, because they really sort of, they didn't really, like, they tried, but they didn't really help the situation. I'm going to kind of explain why. So we have 1993, we have the peace uh, Peace was sought um, with the Arusha Accords. And this kind of tried to form a government between the RPF and the now Rwa- the sort of Rwandan government of Habi Arimana. Didn't kind of work out. It all kind of collapsed. You know, the ceasefire ended between the RPF and the Rwandan government. Fighting continued. It's kind of like what we saw a few years ago with Syria. You know, there was a ceasefire and then it all kind of collapsed. And so there has been a massive, massive criticism of the United Nations in dealing with Iran and the genocide. And I just kind of want to explain why. So why didn't the UN help? Why couldn't they be as effective as they could have been? Well, firstly, they were in a bit of financial crisis at the time. They they just couldn't get the money. You know, there were other problems going on. It was just, it just wasn't a good time. Also, other conflicts around the world. We have the Somalian um, sort of crisis at the time, Bosnia. You know, that was a pretty big thing in the 1990s. A lot of people sent over there to help. Um, along with this, when they were sort of thinking about sending a mission to Rwanda to kind of observe what was going on, 17 U.S. troops were killed in Somalia. That kind of dragged the attention away. There were just other problems that were really, they really had to deal with. Not that they didn't care, but it was just like, we really need to sort of effectively manage our resources. Along with that, even when they did send a mission with a Belgian commander called Dallaire, I think his name was, there was a limited mandate, and now a mandate is like the UN telling them, hey, this is what you can and can't do. It was so limited, the, the guys couldn't even cons- confiscate weapons. Like, they weren't even allowed to, like, shoot. It, it was the basic principle, like, only attack on self-defense, that sort of thing. And when Dahlia sent, like, a letter asking, like, hey, can we, like, stop people from committing crimes and executions, they didn't even get a response from the United Nations. They were just, they were ghosted. You know, they were left on scene. And a bit of cringy, um, <laughs> cringy attempted joke, but yeah. And then we have April 1994. This is the worst part. We have what begins as Black April. Um, if I can kind of uh, find it up. Uh, when did the genocide begin? I think it was the 4th of April, a- April 4th, 1994. Uh, the president's plane is shot down. Uh, the president of Burundi was also inside. Shot down by anti-aircraft French crew killed on board as well after this straight after the Tutsi and the Belgian uh, UN has blamed this was like the major major contingent there because you know they used to own own it so they're there you know um, the the RPF was also blamed the the guys attacking um, them at the time of the civil war hate radio Colin uh, Mil Colinez um, saying avenge our president we need to strike now kill the insects the Inyenzi Yazar that kind of thing um so there was immediate response by the presidential guards roadblocks were set up in the capital kigali the un saw this was like this is like a massive red alert thing for what like 
Like, if you see Roblox getting set up and stuff by the president of God, something is happening. It's like a coup. They don't know what, but something was going on. And they also have the Interhame, which I think I'm pronouncing, but it basically means like interim, I think, like the interim sort of government thing. These were just like mobs of people going around, like with machetes and all that. They were just masking like Tutsis straight away. Absolutely insane. Um, however, while all this is happening, so in a more so broader aspect, the RPF is actually gaining ground because the president was literally blown out the sky. You know, the, the the actual debris of the plane actually hit the presidential palace. I think a bit of it did, and so through all the chaos and all this of so sort of the whole Rwandan world collapsing, the RPF are actually gaining grounds. But there's a bit of a there's a bit of a um, there's a bit of a bad side to that because. Um, in UN reports and stuff, there are also sort of uh, claims that the RPF were also committing like bad stuff too, like human rights violations, bad kind of stuff. So, on the whole scale, it's kind of morally, it's not morally ambiguous. I was going to say that you can't, you can't, it's morally ambiguous to say one side was better than the other. Sure, they were trying to end genocide, but they were just being equally as bad as each other. But then the genocide all ended in July 1994, so I think it's called 100 Days of Death, I think it's believed. And the estimated death toll, because they don't really have any records, you know, it's just kind of everything was burned. The ID cards I mentioned before, they were all burned, so they couldn't really calculate anything. But the estimate around uh, half a million to a million Tutsi were killed, until that is 70% of the Tutsi population, which is just absolutely devastating. Like, that is, like, 70%. I mean sure like a million people it's it's a lot you know but it's not as it's not as much as like other genocides you know i would say but like still a million people that's it's crazy it really really stuns you um but after the end of it all the rpf actually won the civil war due to like the complete anarchy that just happened like you know, just like like the whole government's gone, the president's dead. The other president, he after the uh, after the war, Cindy Kubabo, Kubabo, Kubab, Kubab, it's called Kubab. He uh, died in exile in a different country. Then you have Busy Mungu, and then you have Paul Gagami, which is like the main guy I kind of want to talk about. So. I hope that's been a pretty com- comprehensive sort of relation thing that we can talk about. A lot of a lot of anarchy, pretty whistle stop. It's all over the place, but yeah, that is kind of that has kind of made up the past sort of uh, segment. Really think about the um, the sort of the big question I was asking, like uh, because it, it'll probably be a bit more important and re- irrelevant uh, in the present sort of segment like you know just because things are going good and you're pretty content but there's also like a lot of political assassination all that sort of thing is it still good you know should you give up freedoms for safety basically you know or utilitarianism like uh yeah sure a few political opponents are being killed but it's not that many you know everyone else is fine you know you just have to kind of not share political opinions you know it's the it's the good of the it's the sort of sacrifice of the good of the few for the good of the many, you know, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, that kind of thing. So see if you can kind of think about that and see what you um, sort of agree with. But yeah, 
very deep, very layered sort of relations between two ethnic groups. It's kind of intensified by, you know, let's link this again with the economy. You know, you got hate radio, you got propaganda. How are you going to drive away the your failings as a as a president with the economy? Just scapegoat a minority ethnic group. It works pretty well. It really riles people up. I've seen people literally like brainwashed to go, brainwashed to go out and kill, and it's all just a manipulation of basic surface uh, underlying prejudice that is based just based on a complete a complete just basic sort of tribalism, I guess. Uh, so yeah, pretty big stuff. And so now we're going to be moving on to the present uh, segment. We're going to be looking at, again, the economy, the government, how things have changed, what's up with Paul Kagami, why am I mentioning him so much, and really start thinking about the big themes. So probably a bit quicker in this segment, and then we'll we'll probably finish on a very quick sort of future prediction thing, what do I think is going to happen, that kind of thing. So uh, stick around. little advisory, I think because this is um because this is so big i think you you could always just kind of like um you always just kind of come back to it if you're listening you know if you're enjoying it it's like oh this is a, i'm learning a lot here or whatever you can always just kind of come back to it whenever you want you know that's what i'd recommend i don't really need to tell you that i mean you think you can use your common sense to kind of figure out that you know but uh yeah uh we're gonna be going into the present segment now and just hope you're enjoying it really so yeah so guys, this is the final segment of today's episode. This has been a pretty long episode, so uh, uh, sorry about that, really. Uh, future episodes are probably going to be a lot shorter, much tri- much more trimmed down. I might go for a bit of a smaller uh, idea uh, after this episode, because this is a pretty beefy episode. But we are in the uh, present and future sort of segment around. I'm kind of going to fuse them together, because I, I can give a little analysis just at the end of the present sort of segment, like build on from them what i think is gonna happen in the future so anyway uh once again starting with the government segment who's in charge now it is president paul kagame uh i think he's quite an interesting current politician and he brings a lot of hope for Rwanda. i feel but it also a bit of a big risk i think so paul kagame has been president from 2000 and is still president in 2019 he was the former vice president and defense minister, and uh, a lot of people actually often claimed him to be the de facto leader of Rwanda, which I think is quite interesting. So he's had a lot of political clout in the past, I think, especially as defense minister. You know, he, he holds a lot of influence there. Uh, he also, before the presidency or anything like he commanded a PRF, uh, that should be RPF, sorry, a Rwandan Patriotic Force. Uh, forces during the civil wars and helped the end of the genocide. Also, more importantly, he, uh, I believe, either had a Tutsi father or a Tutsi mother. I can't quite remember, but one of his parents was Tutsi. So I think that really brings a sort of unifying figure to the sort of the new stage of Rwanda, Rwanda's future. You know, if you have a Tutsi leader, you've just you like you're trying to bit reconcile out of a genocide. I think it's a it's a good step forward, and you could probably use that to really sort of bring the country together again. And I will explain a little, like a tiny little bit of info about what he's actually done to help that. But anyway, some of the uh, points that Kagame wants to do, he was been developing this since he he sort of was the vice president back in the day, uh, from like nineteen ninety four, I think, till two thousand when he actually won the presidency. 
So really, he's been prioritizing national development uh, and has been trying to make Rwanda a more middle class sort of country. You know, try and bring it out of the sort of extreme poverty levels that we see in Africa, especially in sort of sub-Saharan Africa with certain like landlocked countries, I, I think. Uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo is landlocked. I'm not too sure, but other places, you know, now now Ethiopia is landlocked after it um it gave up some land to Eritrea. Places like that. Um, I'm trying to remember what's south of Rwanda, but I can't quite remember. Just sort of landlocked countries that, that that really struggle with sort of uh, outside trade, especially since they have no sort of sea routes. But uh, the whole sort of political sort of game for that is uh, he wants to try and make Rwanda a middle class country by 2020. He's named it Vision 2020. He really just wants to bring people out of poverty. So there's really a lot of growth in the country at the moment with GDP, stuff like that, which I'll talk about more and develop on more in the economic uh, sort of segment. But there are some downsides to Kagame's presidency, and I think you're going to see some pretty big parallels that we saw with Habi um, Arimana, and that is election fraud and sort of political assassinations and stuff like that. So just kind of, um, I might recap with you, actually, if I go back to Habi Arimana. Um, let's have a look. So in 1978, 98.99%, 83, 99.97%, 88, 99.98%. pretty sketchy. Um, since he was a pretty crappy president. Uh, then again, though, you know, there was a lot of uh, political propaganda, probably like that, enforces from the MNRD. It was a totalitarian regime. So he probably could have been twisted in a better way. But still, you know, that much of the vote, it's, uh, it's pretty fishy, I think. But anyway, as a comparison with Kagame, 2003, 95.06% of the vote. 2010, 93.08% of the vote. And 2017, 98.8% of the vote. Now you may think, well, you know, uh, as I've sort of said, there's a lot of growth. He's really revitalized the country economically. They're doing really well. They're like the Singapore or like Hong Kong of Africa. That's kind of what they're becoming. Really, really rich. Lots of growth. Lots of potential. You could just think, well, you know, he's like probably one of the best of best of the Rwandan presidents since like it gained its intent. He's the fourth ever president. I think he's pretty good. Why why can't you just sort of like agree that he's been doing pretty well? Well, I mean there I guess so. Yeah, you could argue that. But I mean there are other things like he's made amendments to the constitution or has like allowed them to happen, which effectively means he could be president up to twenty thirty four. So that's like that's a pretty big factor that maybe what he's doing isn't just him his popularity. He might be there to stay. But also there are some pretty big um, accusations of uh, political assassinations and threats that have been made. Uh, the Human Rights Watch documented 10 cases where people have been had been killed or threatened. And Paul Kagame himself said in an interview, whoever betrays the country will pay the price, I assure you. So that's a little bit sketchy. I think there was a Rwandan uh, general killed in South Africa. Uh, there were also been there were, uh, I think one uh, testified that he was offered one million dollars to assassinate critic uh, critics of the Rwandan government and Kagame or critics of Kagame. So once a couple of them together, I think it's kind of clear that what Kagame is trying to do is kind of consolidate power and sort of facilitate a kind of um, 
dictatorship, which I'll be talking a bit more about in the future analysis kind of thing. Anyway, though, moving on to the economy, we have some great growth. I did a little bit of looking up about this and uh, looking at statistics in 2017, Rwanda's uh, growth growth per annum per year uh, was 6.1%. Really good. That's a very large amount of growth. Whereas in the EU in 2017, the average growth was 2.34%. Now, that doesn't mean that like Rwanda is richer than the EU or anything like that. What it is kind of just saying is like Rwanda is like a new and upcoming figure in the sort of economic stage. I think, you know, it's got a lot of potential. It's getting a lot of new investments. The EU, it's kind of locked in its own trade on the inside. You know, there's not a lot of room for improvement in efficiency-wise with production and stuff like that because they're all just trading with each other. They're not trying to expand into new markets. They're just happy kind of trading with each other. They're not getting any new investment. And that's probably causing what's suing, slowing down the growth, I would assume. Maybe I'm not too sure, but just to kind of talk about some new investments that are happening in Rwanda uh, from outside, Uganda has made, has like in like traded around like $171 million, Kenya $165 million, and China $127 million. Keep China in your heads. Just kind of want to go back to that in the future part because I think that's pretty important as well. Um, but also let's, let's talk about Vision 2020. What's that all about? So when uh, Kagame came in office, he had a, uh, uh, had a, um, a goal, I guess, uh, 44 goals actually to sort of bring Rwanda out of poverty, out of destitution after the, the horrible, horrible genocide that occurred in 1994 and kind of transform it into a, a middle-class country, really raise people out of poverty. So there were 44 goals that needed to be achieved in order to make Rwanda into a middle-class country by 2020. And in a report, uh, they kind of classified, like, which target is on track, which targets are, like, a bit wobbly, and which targets off track. In the report, 66% of the goals were on track, which is pretty good. You know, they're doing really well. And these include things like improving instru- infrastructure, improving transport, uh, being more inviting to business, which they're doing pretty well with growth and uh, further investment, because they are do they are like they are booming. There is a very low level of corruption in Rwanda, I believe. Um, improving technology, uh, making a sort of a um, an education system that uh, bases itself on uh, creating new skills. You know, very practical kind of jobs to really sort of boost the economy. You know, you got to you got to kind of uh, make a, a more practical kind of economy before you start going into sort of the techie kind of things. You know, the you got to build blue blue collar before white collar, I guess, kind of thing. Uh, there was also a bit of a downside to this. So there was an independent report made uh, by Belgian academics that, uh, and the report suggested that max growth at any cost, which is sort of like the the maxim that they have uh, in Rwanda with Kagame and stuff, was helping the rich while the rural poor gain nothing. So you know, in a in a bid to kind of really boost the efforts to kind of uh, get up there, uh, really kind of develop themselves, Rwanda's kind of forgetting about the, the, the poorest of the poor and just sort of really raising up the rich to to kind of boost themselves, which is kind of good. You know, it's a, it's a more of a sh- short-term kind of thing. Like, you know, short-term, right, let's get the rich really rich, boost them up, tax them, whatever and then this sort of trickle down sort of economic thing which mm, didn't really work 
but it's doing pretty well for now, so let's see how that one goes. Um, moving on as well, just quickly, we also have the Hutu and Tutu relations. From what I looked at, they're doing really, really well. An actual law that I saw that was implemented uh, during Kagame's presidency was that there is a there is sort of an outlaw sort of tribalism and ethnic sort of attachment has been sort of outlawed in the country, I believe. I'm not too sure what the specifics of the law is, but sort of tribalism in public life has kind of been out- outlawed. It's a very extensive step to try to end the sort of uh, the sort of life lived along ethnic lines, which I think w- will really improve uh, things because, you know, if you're worried about getting sort of arrested because you're like, I'm a Hutu, yay, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, it's probably a bit more violent than that kind of thing, to be honest. But, uh, you know, if you if you worry about getting arrested for that or whatever, Especially with the kind of government Kagami's trying to go under, like a, a very sort of repressive government. I think he was called, he's one of the most influential politicians, but also one of the most repressive countries in Africa at the moment. Like, I think that's kind of knocking the fear into people, which, uh, if you're looking at the theme of today's episode, you kind of want to think about, you know, uh, a lot of fear being instilled in people. Like, if you try to stick to ethnic lines, you are going to get arrested. You know, that's a pretty big thing. But, like, it's a it's a short-term loss of freedom for a long-term gain of like you know never having a genocide again that's a pretty interesting thing me personally uh i don't know i'm not too sure on that one because you know principles the freedoms of individuals stuff like that you really gotta hang on to that because once you let one go you can tear down all the others you know you lose freedom of speech well why not lose you know freedom of religion why not lose freedom of association you know you can choose to you know, uh, sort of, what is the word? I've forgotten the word. Hang around, you know, you've, you've lived or associate, you know, freedom association deals with associating with people who wouldn't have, who would have thought, um, you know, the freedom just to associate with different people. You can refuse to serve certain people. That is a freedom that you have. No one can impose that on, but upon you. What if Kagami decides, yeah, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna scrap these other things for the sake of improving the country, max growth at any cost, you know? You know any cost, that's a pretty arbitrary sort of figure. Who's deciding that? You know? So these are the sort of ominous things that we have to look for in the uh, read between the lines, I suppose. Anyway though, um just with the relationships in general, many people who committed the crimes were imprisoned and do community service, you know. I've seen a lot of stuff about people who've done like 10, 20, 8, 10, 20 years and then done an extra two years of community service outside of of uh, prison. Many people are trying to recon- reconcile through church groups, which is which is a really big di- sort of flip with the dynamics because churches were actually helping people commit mass murder, like executions happened at churches, which is like a, a huge turnaround. I think it's it's a turnaround for the better, clearly. There are also many survivor foundations set up. You have the Survivors Fund, IBUKA, I have no idea what that means, and AVEGA, I have no idea what that means either. There is also the Hope and Peace Foundation, which brings children's victims and children and victims together to kind of coincide. There was a there was a story of a, a Hutu and a Tutsi. The Hutu's father killed the Tutsi's parents, but the the Hutu uh, man was married to the Tutsi's sister. 
if you can follow that through the entire way, unlike me, well done you. Uh, but uh, yeah, like there are very serious steps being made legally and non-legally just through so people wanting to come together and reconcile and put it behind them. You know, there because of the actual like huge Christian population of Rwanda in 2002, it was reported around 82% of Rwanda Rwandans were Christian that uh, 57% was Roman Catholic and the rest were Protestant and some were Seventh-day Adventists, but I didn't include them because I'm not too sure what they are. Uh, but yeah, the I've seen sort of first-hand interviews with people who committed the uh, atrocities of the Rwand genocide, and they basically just said, I felt so guilty. I, I saw sort of uh, visions of the people I killed, and I just had to, you know, repent and reconcile with the people that I hurt. And just kind of, you know, come together. Uh, there was there was one group that, uh, a survivors group that helped uh, attackers and victims come together and they'd actually built around 118 houses through sort of a community action kind of thing. So, so out of this kind of horrible devastation that the genocide caused, there's really been a, a turnaround and I really think it's, it's going in the right direction and I, I have many doubts that uh, those ethnic tensions might ever rise again in the same sort of intensity that they did in 1994. There might be some more ethnic clashes. I don't know. I think there is a bit of a north and south divide in Rwanda at the moment. I think there is more Tutsis in the south, I believe. I'm not too sure. But that might cause some conflict as well. But anyway, on to the future. And there are so many possibilities here. But first I want to start off, start off with Kagame and the possible dictatorship. So from the electoral fraud, the assassination stuff I was talking about, that kind of stuff, I think it's very possible that Kagame might try to become a dictator, and I really hope he doesn't. But the way it's going, you know, you might he could be president until 2034. That's, that's quite a while. That gives him a lot of time to consolidate power. And I just hope that he doesn't. You know, I hope that he, uh, he doesn't hang on. But then again, you know, why not? You know, what? Why? why can't we allow the existence of a benevolent dictator? And I think this probably comes from a very Eurocentric sort of idea that, you know, democracy is the best way. If you're not a democracy, you're doing it wrong. Like, why? You know, like, there has been so much um, improvement in Rwanda through this through this guy, Kagame, uh, the president, you know, just some guy. And yes, there has been violence and political assassination and threats and whatnot, but he's doing well. But flip that coin over, that's not a saying. And look at uh, Habi Arimana. You know, he was totalitarian. He forced people to dance in adulation for him. And look what happened to him. You know, there was a there was a genocide, a civil war that he lost. He died. He got shot up in a plane. And that didn't go very well for him. And it didn't go very well for the country. May I remind you, minus 40% decrease in GDP. That's not good. And he was totalitarian as well. I mean, it's not—it's nowhere near the level of what um, uh, Habi Arimanas was. But I mean, the the other opponent parties in Rwanda right now are only getting like 0.7, 0.5 percent of the vote. 
like they they hold no weight anyway so it might as well just be totalitarian you know what i mean so yeah uh that's that's probably a big worry for Rwanda at the moment um but it seems we're going fine at the moment you know so let's just hope that kagama's benevolence and sort of sort of economic uh economic savviness uh continues into the future along with that further influence from tr- influence from trade i specifically highlighted china because uh what i've noticed and what i've been reading about is that china is having an extensive influence into the african nations and southeast asian nations as well trying to create a new silk road of trade whereby they basically their basic tactic is like okay we'll build stuff in your country we'll give you a loan but they sort of prey on like countries that they know can't repay the stuff like in pakistan they loan the money to build a port but then pakistan like in the actual contract it was like right if you can't pay back the loan we're allowed to like use your port and stuff and basically own it so that kind of happened with pakistan's port uh they have a military base in djibouti djibouti i i don't know their first foreign military base so they're clearly having some expansion to kind of protect their um their foreign investments they invested in a roadway, I believe, in Rwanda and something else. I don't know. But also, it's not just that. It's not just about sort of their trades. They're also gaining political influence. Like, if you can give a bunch of money, and they have got money to burn, I think, to be honest, they are really making gains in the in the world, economically-wise. China is soaring. They aim to be, like, uh, the top producer in, like, almost every market by, like, 2030 or 2050 or something like that. And so they're really um, gaining some political clout in the United Nations by, you know, hey, if we can pay for a bunch of stuff in your country and you let us like use it while you have it as well, uh, you'll like us more. And then you can vote with us in the United Nations. And what we start to see is slowly the the sort of influence that we have from the United States and Africa and stuff like that has slowly began to fade away. They're losing their grip, this new, this new world order that Woodrow Wilson envisioned at the end of the, the First World War has now been slowly drifting away as, as you know, China takes its grip on Africa by basically bribing the nations and stuff like that. So I think Rwanda really has to watch out for foreign influence like that. You know, you have to have a certain level of economic independence. And that is also something that Kagame um, criticized Europe for because Europe's sort of, way of looking at africa was like right let's just give them foreign aid you know and it, it creates a it creates a level of dependence that african nations have on that foreign aid instead of opening up investment opportunities instead of prioritizing the european economies more than the african ones they don't allow for sort of market competition they don't allow for open trade they, they impose very high tariffs so african market goods can't reach european markets and it just goes bad for everyone else because then people are poor in African nations and they try to go to to Europe and that causes a bunch of problems. And now we have the migrant crisis, like crisis. I always say crisis, right? I never know why. And then in the future, there is expected there is expected to be about a billion migrants crossing in the next few. Like uh, I can't remember how many so years, but uh, like a billion migrants. Like it's insane. You know that it's it's just a negative feedback loop of bad stuff because of foreign aid and so many other factors, which I'd be really excited to talk about. But 
moving on because it's been like 20 minutes. So this this podcast is already an hour long. But anyway, and finally, better relations with the Hutu and Tutsis. As I've already mentioned, church groups, reconciliation, this, that, and the other, survivors meeting and and uh, victims conversing and the children getting along. And kind of, that's kind of the best thing as well. The children are actually like coming together and forming bonds. Like their last generation might not have done that, but the children now are like, I don't care what you are, Tutsi, Hutu, whatever. Tor, as previously mentioned, the very small ethnic minority. Um, it doesn't matter. They are coming together and it's working really well. And I f- really think that, and the sort of Christian aspect of, of it is helping as well. You know, this sort of idea of church groups coming together, you know. So it's looking pretty bright, but also pretty bleak. Pretty pretty bright for the ethnic sort of thing. Kind kind of bright for Kagame. You know, he's got a he's, he's a very, bit of a different twist, but he's, he's close to falling into that benevolent dictator thing, which then slowly falls into tyrant. And then we have another um, failed nation on our hands which would not be very good for anyone. And then we have a very bleak sort of, um, not a very bleak because, you know, trade trade helps, you know, but but then it's China and they're up there. Uh, I think they're up to something a bit fishy. But I I, I think they, um, overall, I have a bit of hope. I have some good hope for Rwanda. It's doing really well. It's a great example to have African nations in some ways. In some ways it's not, but that's, from my point of view, is living in a democratic country, I I would like to see if if uh, the experiment of a benevolent dictatorship would work because I think it's quite interesting. Um, who knows? They might even bring the monarchy back. That might be something crazy. You know, let's just you know, let's go wild in twenty twenty. Rwanda monarchy. Let's bring it back. Let's do it. <laughs> Probably the worst comeback ever. <laughs> but yeah uh so that that's it really that is kind of the 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 end of the episode i guess i'm not too sure how to end this but uh yeah i really hope you've enjoyed it it's been really fun uh talking about this stuff analyzing opinion i think i stretched out the first part the past way too much that was like 45 minutes just for the past like it's it's kind of insane um so i think that's something i'm going to develop but um you know, I don't. I don't really mind if people do enjoy this. You know, it's 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 about Rwanda. You know, it's it's not very um, ingrained in people's minds. But I just think it's you know, it's a topic. It's something interesting to talk about. It's just something new. You know, um, it's really interesting to kind of learn stuff about the world around us. And I really hope you enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it a lot, and I really hope to see you in the next episode or hear from you in the next episode. I'd really love some feedback. I don't know what the next episode will be about. I'm going to mull over it in this weekend and just kind of get going on some ideas. But yeah, this is the Ungenius Podcast. This is episode one, the past, present, and future Rwanda. I've Rwanda. I've been Brendan. I am Brendan. I am being Brendan. I don't know how to speak. Uh, but yeah, I'm Brendan. Uh, I'm the host. Did I mention my name is Brendan? Uh, but yeah. And I will see you guys next episode. Enjoy.